Hi, this is Bryant. I've just got a little plug before we begin the episode. I'm doing a little contest called the Playlist Challenge. It's where people make Spotify playlists and then match up against each other in sort of a tournament bracket sort of deal. I've got a playlist on there called Custom Van Jams. It's a lot of like stoner, doom metal, and um, Australian psychedelic music. So go check it out. I'll put the link in the description. Vote for my playlist if you like it or you know vote for someone else's i don't i'm i'm not your boss so back to the episode all profit is value extraction and that means that all profit is theft from you corporate america is on welfare and they you got to get them off welfare I'm a little tired myself. Yo, it's Sunday. That's the best day to be fucking tired because you know you got to go into work tomorrow. Good morning. Sunday morning. Sunday morning. Wait, are we recording? I'm not going to sing on a recording. (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to, I was, I was quoting uh, Nancy Pelosi, but. Uh, I was go ahead whenever. Underground. <laughs> go ahead and whenever you're ready. Dude, I'm not singing on recording. I have a terrible singing voice. Welcome to Cars and Comrades, the world's first uh, leftist car podcast about leftist car stuff. So uh, here I am today, uh, I guess, do- on hosting duties. This is Brandon. Here with me, we have Bryant. Howdy. Zach. Kachow. And Connor. Yo. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking uh, about a thing that I think everybody in the car community can uh, relate to, and that is the shit boxes that you have owned throughout the years and some of our best shit box stories. And we got a l- little bit of other topic Brian wants to talk about, too. You want to lead in with that, Brian? Yeah, uh, I think we're going to get to that after the shit boxes, but uh, we're going to talk about the Battle of the Overpass. In uh, 1937 in Detroit, um, sort of a moment in labor history uh, in the auto industry. Um, should be a little quick little bite of history. And uh, we'll, we'll probably follow up later in, in other episodes about the events that led up to the Battle of the Overpass and sort of the ramifications after it. But it's just a, an interesting little moment in history, I think. All right. Um, I, I didn't like have this planned. I, we decided I was hosting like 30 seconds ago. So <laughs> you're doing uh, great. Yeah. Let's... Yeah. Good job. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Yeah, you're doing fine. <laughs> I'll take fine. Fine's fine. Better than bad. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, what, what are we? What are we doing? Who wants? Who wants to start with their shitbox story? I, I feel like I should go last because I'm. Re- I, I. You can't beat me. <laughs> my shitbox story is the shitboxiest so alright well I'll go since no one's jumping up um, I guess really every car I've owned or been handed the keys to 
is been a, a chip box of some variety, you know, it's all relative, really. I mean, my my MR2 has uh, I, I crashed it into a curb and bent the suspension and now it's a little bit wonky. Uh, and my, my Sabaru has uh, probably some engine problems that I'm not addressing right now. You know, just going to wait till it blows up and put a new motor in there, probably. And then I also owned, or I should say, had the use of my mom's old uh, 2004 Kia Spectra, which was not, I mean, it was probably one of the more reliable cars I've ever driven. Um, the only problem I had was uh, the, um, what's it called? The water pump uh, started, like one of the bolts started backing up out of it. And so it was making some some really terrible noises as the, the gears or whatever drive the, the water pump started to, to clash with each other. But uh, I mean, other than that, it was just kind of a not very well-built appliance. You know, it was, it was white. So I called it, you know, like a refrigerator basically. Um, and it, it seemed very similar in build quality to like, I don't know, a Ford Escort from 1994 or something like that. Uh, even though it was built 10 years later and uh, like it, the sheet metal was very thin. The paint was very thin and coming off in parts and uh, like the dash cracked and like just bolts would like rattle loose and fall off of it on occasion. So yeah, not, not the greatest quality uh, product. I, I understand that Kia has gotten better. Well, maybe relatively I, debatable. You know, yeah, <laughs> I thought they did, uh, but uh, I'm starting to question that. Now that some yeah. of those nicer looking cars have aged out a little bit, you're like, oh, maybe they weren't so great. <laughs> <laughs> so good marketing, uh, but... I suppose. What the hell was that? Uh, my phone played something. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't have the video turned on right now, so... <laughs> I opened the wrong goddamn thing on my phone when I went to go, and it's still happening. <laughs> I thought it was like a radio shake, a radio show thing where uh, you know, play a little soundbite. For... No, uh, apparently, if I open my phone at all right now, it opens on a video that plays automatically, so I can't even like check what I just got sent. So, <laughs> fuck my phone for a while, I guess. Yeah, just smash it with a brick. But yeah, so probably the the most hoopty car I've ever had was my uh, '95 Mazda Miata. When Which I is got it, not a sports car, by the way. Oh, it's definitely a sports car. I mean, yeah, it's a sports car. Yeah, it fits all the. I mean, I guess demolition derby is a sport, so fair enough. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, maybe this particular one was not so much a sports car, but uh, but in general, yeah. Okay. Like when I got it, like the the door locks did not work. The guy I bought it from uh, lived on a farm and had an electric fence that he could put around it, so he didn't really need to lock it. Um, but I was like, I should probably put locks on this thing that work. There weren't a lot of straight body panels on it. Uh, it definitely not when I sold it. Um, <laughs> and uh, it was all kind of like faded black, mostly rattle can paint. When I got it, it had a uh, a hard top, which are pretty pricey nowadays. Like, yeah, that's awesome. 
Um, but I ended up selling it to pay some bills because I got in some financial problem trouble. Um, and you owed a bunch of guys named Bill money. Uh, yeah, yeah, I had some bills to pay, and then I had just the convertible top, which was had some issues. It had seen better days, so I, uh, you know, where it had some cracks and tears in it, I took a sewing needle and some uh, a dental floss. And stitched it up and then smeared some like window caulking over top of that and then spray painted it to match the color of the rest of the top. That sounds like a pretty good fix to me. Yeah, I mean, it worked pretty good, actually. Um, It's not just good. It's good enough. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And then the uh, and then the um, rear window, the plastic vinyl rear window cracked and faded and was all kinds of terrible. And um, my one coworker who uh, believes that the earth is flat uh, was. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Have I not Say mentioned that him? part again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So my one coworker, I won't mention his name. Uh, he's a little bit weird. I don't know, man. Normalize shaming flat earthers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What we're not we're not horizontalists here. We're not into the the flattening of hierarchies. Come on, guys. I'm not saying you can't shame like shame me for being a flat earther. That's fine. Okay, okay. I'm not really that. I'm not that. <laughs> I don't believe in the third dimension, so I, I don't. It can't be flat. It's a single yeah. point. There you go. Hmm. So this guy's a little weird. He's he's a uh, you know Burning Man type type guy. And uh, he was building a geodesic greenhouse in his backyard and he had some some vinyl left over. And I was like, great, cool, I'll buy some from you. And then I glued it in, you know, cut out the old one, glued it in. Um, and then like a few months later, it was winter time. It was probably like, I don't know, 10 degrees outside. And I had just uh, scraped off the windshield and I took the, the brush or the scraper or whatever and I threw it into the back of my car and the vinyl window just shattered. Uh, so so after that it was held together with uh, clear packing tape until I sold it Um, what else was wrong with that thing clear packing tape is what uh, is what's currently covering my uh, my headlight in my actual quote unquote nice car yeah (laughs) yeah it's great stuff let's see what else was wrong with it I was going to turbocharge this car uh, and then I was like, yeah, that sounds like a lot of work. I don't really actually want to do that. Mostly because I did a compression test. I've heard Miatas do not take boost very well. Like... Oh, no, no, they're great. Like uh, the first and second gen, um, they, the the motor that they used was adapted from the, uh, what is it, 323 turbo or whatever the trim level is uh, for the Mazda 323 turbo. So like, I know the first gens have... You can just undo a bolt or a plug or whatever on the side of the block and you get pressurized oil uh, to, to oh. plumb to the turbo. Um, and then I think they might have even had a drain plug in the pan. I don't remember that. Um, huh. I just I thought I they, can't remember which motor it was, but it was like the either the 1.6, the 1.8 was like kind of kind of really sketchy when you started trying to boost it. Like they just were not meant to handle it. But I don't know. Maybe I'm I wrong. mean, I mean, they're kind of limited. Like 
stock internals you can go up to maybe 250 horsepower on a 1.8 uh any more than that you gotta like you know put in pistons and rods at least yeah uh, but they're they're pretty stout um like they have engine oil squirters uh or piston squirters or whatever where they it shoots uh oil on the underside mm-hmm. of the piston to keep it cool so okay. that's and they're pretty low compression engines for for what they are gotcha. um so like I had, you know, I had it kind of worked out and like what kind of parts I was going to use, but like I did a compression test of the motor and it was like, I think one cylinder was like 80 PSI. So it's like, yeah, I'd have to like probably take this engine out and replace it. And the rest of the car isn't that great. Yeah. And, and I also did run that car into a curb also and uh, bend the suspension on one corner. So I had to replace we, the, we, the AR. You're trying to drift? Yeah. Oh, well, in snow. Um, no, yep. Yep. Yeah. I've uh, <laughs> I've hit a, I've hit a few curbs. So yeah, <laughs> I, I know it. It's <laughs> you get used to it. <laughs> yeah. So I sold it to some kid who went by the name Keanu. I don't know if that was his real name or not, but maybe he just looked a little bit like Keanu Reeves. He said he was going to fix it up. I have no idea what he did with it. Um, I also, as I own that car, I probably replaced the coolant temp sensor like five times and the O2 sensor like two or three times. And it would run pretty good for like three or four months and then one or the other would fuck up. Um, (laughs) So I think I might have said this in a previous podcast, but don't buy the cheapest part that they have on Rock Auto and expect it to last any length of time. You know, maybe go for the the ten dollar part instead of the five dollar part. But I don't know, man. Last year, my buddy uh, did a bunch of suspension work on his Mustang with Rock Auto parts, and they lasted clear into last week. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. He got almost like, he got a, over a year out of them. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, and another problem I ran into was, I guess the early 95 cars had a um a unique um engine computer so like the 94 had a different engine computer and the 96 had a different engine computer and there wasn't a whole lot of support for the 95 so i got um i got a mega squirt ecu which if anyone wants to buy a mega squirt uh you know hit me up i'll sell it to you Oh, actually, now that you mention it, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. Yeah. Um, Computers have uh, no business in cars. Sure. Uh, I'd push back on that. It's it's definitely helpful if you want to have a turbo. Like, carbs and turbos, not the greatest combination. But, uh, I mean, there's ways of making that work, I guess. But, uh... Yeah, so I was going to do that, and then I'm like, well, fuck, all all of this wiring is totally different than anything that anyone has online. Like, I could probably have dug through it and figured it out, but, um, like, just for funsies, my, my friend had, I think, a 94 um, or maybe a 96 uh, Miata, and we just decided to, like, swap the ECUs between them to see what would happen. And the answer <laughs> is nothing. It didn't start at all. So, uh, hmm. yeah. Um, 
I don't know. Maybe someone will email in and tell me that I'm wrong and that I just needed to do such and such and everything would have been fine. But uh, whatever, I sold that car. It's gone now. Yeah, dude, it's easy. If you just fix all the problems, then it works great. <laughs> <laughs> I did find out, though, when I was looking into maybe getting a different motor that um, I think it's like 97 to 2001 Kia Safia has the same exact engine block as a Miata. Like it was built under license or whatever, or maybe even Mazda built them and sent them over to Kia. But so like all the accessories and the manifolds are slightly different, but the, the long block is exactly the same. And it's always a good sign when your quote unquote sports car has a Kia motor in it. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. The the Kia has a sports car motor. It's different. It's not. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you can get those those cool. long blocks for like two hundred bucks. Uh, you know. Oh, I was about to expensive. say, what's the upside here? But two hundred bucks sounds like an upside. Okay, that's yeah, that's that's a car that can handle thirty pounds of boost because you don't care. <laughs> I can go yeah. to the junkyard and get a small block Chevy motor for two hundred bucks any day of the week. <laughs> Fun yeah. fact: uh, a small block Chevy will fit into a Miata. I've yes. seen LS swapped Miatas, yes. Yep, yes. yep, they're a thing. And if I had like $20,000 to spend on, you know, uh, cutting back the, the transmission tunnel and putting in a T56 and a, a diff All from you need like a, hammer. a Cadillac. What's that? A hammer will do it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, like you can buy kits to do this, but like it's it's not an easy job. Like No, no, it's not. Yeah. You got to replace basically the entire drivetrain and the front and rear subframe and a couple other things. So, yeah, but um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll get a Miata again someday. They're they're pretty fun cars. Like, I really do miss the um, the double wishbone suspension on those is is pretty uh, pretty good, which is part of what I I feel makes it a, a sports car. Is just that handling that it has. Yeah, I mean the fact that they dominate autocross is, I, I think, yeah. usually a pretty good indication of something there. Um, but man, so far it sounds like I don't know anything about like what Miatas are good at. I just look at them and, and in my heart of hearts, know that it's not a four-cylinder sports car. Uh, yeah. See, that's the thing. You haven't been looking at autocross. You know, you can show up with a stock Miata and you'll beat the shit out of like built cars. Because they're just I've built, small. I've so in a few minutes here when we get to my shitbox story, I should include that I have beat a Miata in a drag race in that shitbox. Ain't well, anything could beat a Miata in a in a drag race. I'll, I'll you know pretty yeah I yeah I'm fairly confident I can beat a Miata on <laughs> foot in a drag race. Yeah, <laughs> they're not they're not quick straight line. There cars. was uh there was one point when I was driving my Miata. I, I lost a drag race to a Kia Soul, and I don't think they, they knew that we were racing. So. <laughs> I mean, I had my foot to the floor. I don't know about them. They still beat me. Oh, man, that's that's fucking great. Um, I mean, yeah. all that said, so far, this, this Miata sounds like any Miata you could find on Craigslist right now. Like, generally speaking, this is like the level of Miatas in general. Um, everyone I've ever seen sounds like what you're describing. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> well, and and it didn't cost me that much because I I bought it for like three thousand. I sold the hard top for like eight hundred, uh, and then I sold the rest of the car for like two thousand. So like over I don't know the three years that I owned it or four years that I owned it, you know, it didn't really cost that much other than replacing sensors and control arms and uh, a couple other things here and there. That's pretty good. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess if we're going alphabetically, I guess uh, Brandon would be next. Or he would have Are... been before me. I don't know. Oh, I, I said I, I was going to go last because I wanted to see if any of y'all could beat me, but I'll go. Oh, that's I, I right. Care. That's right. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I can I can go then. Well, we can yeah, Brandon Connor, go last. ahead. Um, all right. So this is just... <clears throat> I don't know if this is going to be my worst shitbox car story because I've owned a lot of them. So they're all different in their own way. Um, today, I'm going to talk about a car that I owned for, I think it was about six weeks um, before the transmission blew up. So I know that Bryant and Zach are both, uh, both fans of Subarus. You know, my, my partners, she likes her Subarus as well. Um, I, I kind of don't. I got a bad taste in my mouth after I owned one. So <laughs> so uh, it was a few years ago. It was the last car I had before. Oh, yes. Yeah, so this is more than a few years. Uh, so this was God, this is about seven years ago. Ooh. Um, so right before I bought my uh, 350Z, I, I had to get a winter car because the Camaro was not uh, set for winter. Um, it, it just that's what I was dailying at the time. Um, cause I got to work in and everything. And then I was like, Oh, I can daily this. Um, but then of course I tried to drive it in snow and it was, it was a nightmare. Um, that the Camaro is, is a shitty car to drive in general. Um, it's not a driver's car. It's, it's, it goes fast in a straight line, but like everything about it is it handles like shit. It can't, it just can't get any traction and I hate it. Um, it's, it feels like a boat. So, uh, anyway, so I was in, I was desperate for a winter car because it had already snowed and I needed a winter car because I waited to the last minute. So uh, a good friend of mine was trying to convince me, he's like, you know what, get yourself a Subaru, you can get a cheap one and, you know, it'll, it'll be reliable. And it's like, if you take care of it and you maintain it, change the fluids and stuff, man, that car will last you. And you know, I'm looking at stuff because at the time I just, I didn't have, um, much to spend on a winter car. Um, so I needed a beater. I was looking in the, you know, under $2,000 range. And we all know that that's, that's usually a, a bad start. So, you know, what? I don't pay more than two grand for anything except my muscle car. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, in, in this case, uh, it was a bad start. Um, so I had a friend and he was like, you know what, in that price range, your best bet is to get a Subaru. Um, he's like, because, you know, everything's got, you know, 150 to 200,000 miles I'm looking at. And I'm like, God, that's a, that's a lot of miles. And he's like, yeah, but you know what? A Subaru can handle that. And, you know, it'll it'll do good. So I came upon a, I think it was a 2001. Or it was either a 2000 or a 2001. I don't remember. Um, but it was a Subaru Legacy. And they wanted 1500 bucks. Um, which I think I got them down to like 1300 or whatever. So I, I, I went and I test drove it with, uh, my friend who's like, who knows all this stuff about Subarus and we're looking at it and we're like, okay, this, this seems pretty good for a $1,500 car. 
you know, it looked clean. Um, so it actually looked halfway decent. Um, no real rust problems. Uh, it felt good. The suspension felt okay. A little bit loose in the front end, but I was like, yeah, it's a $1,500 car and it's got to last me, you know, a few months. So, um, nothing major, but so anyway, I, I buy it. Um, which that was a whole, a whole situation. I, I don't remember why, but like we had to do a title transfer in the basement of this random woman for whatever reason. I was like, I don't know what's going on here, but there was probably something mildly illegal happening, but which not for like any nefarious reasons. I think it was, you know, I think they were undocumented or something. And so I was like, whatever, you know, um, so we're doing that. We had to do this like just wacky transfer process. It was just really bizarre and all over the place, but um, they all got it taken care of. And so it went smoothly enough. And so I was like, okay, cool. Uh, so I, I have this car and, you know, it, it's, it was fine for about a week. Um, and then right, right around then I started having problems with the alarm, which would go off every time I open, open the car, um, immediately. <laughs> uh, well, not, oh, every you time. said alarm, alarm and I had no idea what you were talking about because the car alarm is not even in my purview. Yeah, was this uh, was this from the factory? Or was this like one of those aftermarket deals? Um, I I'm thinking back. I think this was actually the factory alarm, and I think for whatever reason there was like a wiring issue. So this thing was just it would shut down the car. It would make it so the car wouldn't start. Um, and I never knew when it was going to be a problem. So like sometimes the you know I could get in the car, you know, put it in the ignition, start it, and then the alarm goes off. Okay, fine you know, that wasn't a problem, but there were times where I'd get in the car, put it in the ignition, turn the key and the alarm doesn't stop. The car doesn't start. Nothing happens. And it just, <laughs> it would be, you know, it could be late at night or whatever. And my car sitting in the alley at my parents, house, just going off. And I was like, Oh no. So there were days, I think there was like a day where I literally had to call off of work um, because the car, it was just like, I'm like, well, I can't make the alarm work. I'm I'm like locked out of my fucking car right now. Sorry. I'm going to try and figure this out. But <laughs> so, uh, so far it was not a very reliable car in, in even just that respect, which at some point it kind of just stopped doing it as often. I don't know why uh, there's no discernible reason, but it, it, at some point without me messing around with it, I eventually kind of figured out some of the ticks and just like, got into the car a special way or whatever. Uh, but shortly after that, um, <clears throat> the driver's side door stopped opening. Um, so the lock mechanism broke in some respect. So I'd have to crawl into the car um, using either the passenger side door or one of the rear doors. So that was, that was fun for a while. Um, and then I think the passenger side door wouldn't open from the outside. So like I had to like get to this point where I was, crawling into the back of the car and then into the driver's seat for a couple of weeks. You know, that was always just an obnoxious problem to have. Um, like, Oh yeah, I'm going to get in my car, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, whatever. And then I'm crawling into the back seat and <laughs> doing all this stuff. So then, so there was that, it was the alarm issue. And then, um, not too long later, about a month after I'd bought it, the, um, the car started like shifting real funny. Like it would just not shift 
in time and i was like uh oh and then when it would shift it would it would shift real like it was like a soft kind of shift so like it would shift but then it would kind of like not have full power for you know a couple seconds and then it would kind of grab a little bit better um and i was like okay well that's gonna be a problem um i knew that that like this and it degraded very quickly like it just got worse and worse it got to the point so after about a week and a half i'm like this this transmission is going to go any fucking day i need to i need to do something about this car so my plan was um i started looking for other cars i was looking at 350z's i found a you know shady dealership like one of those used car lots that's like you know just that looks like a problem (laughs) but they had a 350z with like a hundred thousand miles on it or something that was in decent shape and i test drove it and on top of it they would take my piece of shit legacy if i could if i could get the car there if i could drive it there and as long as it went forward and it went backward it didn't say how fast it didn't say they're like if it moves forward and backwards of its own power in our parking lot We'll give you, I forget what it was. It was like six or 700 bucks or something. <clears throat> so, uh, of course, the plan was, I was like, this was like a Wednesday. And the plan was to bring it on like a Saturday. So, like, I'm a few days away. I'm going to bring this car in. And I'm like, it's just got to go forward and backward. Uh, and then I'll get that money. Oh, no. um, yeah, it didn't make <laughs> it. So, it was like a Wednesday. I was coming home from work. And I'm going through this major intersection. Not far from my job. And I'm going through, I'm in the middle of the intersection and just smoke and the car stops moving. And I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) It's rush hour. And so to get to this intersection, there's like you're sitting in traffic just to get to this intersection. And in the middle of the intersection, I almost make it there. I'm like three quarters of the way through and the car is just it is down to nothing. I'm going about a half of a mile per hour. Just it's, you know. I'm revving to, you know, 5,500 RPM smoke billowing out of the fucking car. (laughs) Um, And I'm trying to make it into this Walgreens parking lot. Like the driveway is like right there. Um, And I'm like, just it's barely going. I am revved all the way through. And I'm like, there's a little there's like a small little incline to get into this parking lot. And there's just I'm like, I don't know if it's going to make it. And uh, sure enough, it didn't quite make it under its own power so i did have to get out uh and push it by myself meanwhile there's cars like trying to go around me and everything and i am just making a problem for everybody um as i kind of just you know push it a little bit into like the first parking space i could get into and then you know of course i got it off the road and whatever but um yeah the car lasted six weeks and the entire six weeks was just every every problem it was very annoying all the time um that alarm issue would happen at work which was always fun because like that wasn't ever embarrassing when i'm like at work at lunch and just my car is in the parking lot sometimes when i wasn't anywhere near it uh, there were times where i had to get up from my desk because i could hear the alarm going off in the parking lot for no reason so it was uh yeah it was quite a shitbox um after that i was like hmm yeah, and it didn't have that many miles. I think it was like 120,000 miles on it or something. Like it was 
it was it, this was just a lemon. Um, I don't think it's I'm not going to let it reflect entirely on Subaru, but I'll tell you, I'm a little more skeptical of Subarus these days. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, and, and my friend who was like all about it. And I, I, I looked at him. I said, mm, never again. Am I listening to this horse shit? <laughs> and he's like, oh, it felt fine when we drove it. How were we supposed to know? I said, no, it's just the way it goes sometimes buying a used car. But uh, yeah, I was desperate for a winter car. And uh, that that didn't work as one. And then a little while later, I bought a 350Z because that was a better winter car. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) The best winter car is the car that you can drive during winter. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, fuck it. (laughs) So that's the story of that one. It was just it was a lemon the whole time. Um, It was kind of funny, though. I mean, it was embarrassing and stupid, but like, I don't know. It was kind of funny. It was a fun little hoopty. <laughs> so did you scrap it or did you get someone to buy it from you? Uh, no, I did. I did scrap it. I got like 250 bucks for it or something. It was it was kind of pitiful. It was OK. I was really hoping for that for that real, you know, trade in value. But anyway, it, it worked out in my favor. I, I, I got less money for the piece of shit car, but um, I, I ended up. I found a better deal on a 350Z. So for something for a little extra money, I uh, there was a guy who was in my uh, pool league. Um, so we were on the same team, uh, and he had a 350Z with 60,000 miles. And uh, I knew he babied the car, so I, I actually ended up buying that one instead. Cool. Yeah. So it worked out in my favor. But nice. yeah, that was that 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 was the car that like lasted the least amount of time i was like damn this was a real this really was fucked up yeah that is a real hoopty yep nothing got nothing on me (laughs) (laughs) let's let's see what zach's got (laughs) yeah uh i can tell by the throat clear that this is fucking serious (laughs) oh yeah very serious (laughs) I was um, I was actually going to talk about my 2001 Subaru Legacy Outback, but in uh, in, in hopes in hopes of not besmirching Subaru anymore, I'm not going to talk about that. Ooh, yeah, that's that's going to hurt. I'm going to when you whenever you do talk about it, I'm going to remind the listeners that this car seems to be coming up often as a shit box. <laughs> You know that would I I just I don't think mine can compare to how bad that one was. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I'm gonna go I'm gonna go a different direction with mine. Um, the the very first car I ever purchased for myself, I was 17 years old, and friend of a friend had a 1962 Ford Falcon two door. Beautiful. I love classic cars. Love them. Uh, this thing was not exactly a time capsule. It was, it was rough. Uh, so when I bought it, it had been rattle canned matte black with primer, not paint. Oh yeah. Uh, all of the chrome trim had overspray on it. All of the windows had overspray on them. Nice. Uh, it had a vinyl bench seat in the front. No seat belts. Who needs those? No power steering. No power steering, no power brakes. Yeah, it was it was great. <laughs> uh, it also had... You're describing like the... my regular vehicles. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, you know, 
it's something about old cars. Like you like how I'm being a shitbox gatekeeper right now. <laughs> <laughs> that shit box isn't even shitty bro that's like a great car Yo, there are no cracks in none of the windows no true shit box fallacy <laughs> <laughs> oh, just give me a minute yeah no so it, it had um it had the massively powerful 144 cubic inch straight six nice in it yeah with a with a split header so if you're not familiar with that setup uh, three cylinders went into one collector. The other three went into another, and it had dual exhaust, baby. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like quite the option. Oh, yeah. I don't know that that was factory um, because the exhaust had cherry bombs on it that cut off right behind the front seat. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty deafening to be in the back seat. Um, and I ripped a, a stereo out of like an old blazer or something and just screwed it to the bottom of the dash and wired the two speakers that I could find for it to the, I don't know what you call it, like right behind the rear seat, that, uh, that deck there in between the rear glass. Package parcel tray. shelf. Yeah. Yeah. There, there we go. Parcel shelf. Um, so they kind of looked like headrests, but they were actually, uh, speakers for the radio. And I would have that on full fucking volume so I could hear it in the front seat. So riding in the back of that car was um, not pleasant for anyone. It was just full blast rock radio and cherry bomb split headers right under your feet. Every window had a crack in it. Uh, I'm trying to think of all the other horrible things Wait, that I dealt so with. I don't know. What is it about, what is it about those really old cars that like every window is cracked? Like it's a perpetual thing. What is that about? It's got like, it's got to be just the type of glass they use. I mean, right? I'm sure this will be. I'm sure that modern glass is like. Yeah, I mean, it could just be just, uh, just entropy. Just you know, over time, things tend to crack. Yeah, I suppose. And, I, oh. I don't know. I feel like newer windows are a little less prone to cracking, but maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm just uh, connecting things that aren't connected. I don't know. Possibly. It's, it was an old car. The glass was old. So all of it was cracked. Um, the only window that didn't roll down uh, was the driver's side one. Mine. Nice. Uh, I took the door panel off probably 50 times and reworked the, uh, the mechanism in there to make it work. And it would work for about a day. And then it would just quit working. Um, but a fun, a fun little thing that it would do since it had no power steering, uh, and a bench seat in the front. Uh, if you took a turn real, real fast, uh, you would slide <laughs> across the bench seat into the passenger seat and then have to yank yourself back into the driving position. <laughs> so I think about 13 miles an hour was as fast as I could take uh, left oh turns. Oh my God. That's that sounds like the exact reason why that. Ralph Nader wrote that book. Like, he, <laughs> he wasn't kidding. I drove very safely. I drove very safely in that car. It was terrifying. I constantly thought I was gonna die. Zach, was was that hundred and forty four cubic inch motor actually capable of going much over thirteen? Uh you know what? With a little bit of tailwind and a downhill, yeah, it could break thirteen. Cool. Okay, okay. 
<laughs> no, I uh, I did get it out on the high one one time, and like I said, I was 17 when I got this car, so uh, a verifiable dumbass. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder how fast I can get this baby going. <laughs> um, I think I hit 83, and I I legitimately was in fear for my life. Everything was shaking. I was about to change lanes very unintentionally. (laughs) (laughs) I think I did more steering on the steering wheel in that short period of time than I usually did in a week driving that car. Because it was just all over the place. Yeah, not not exactly a speed racer of a car. Um, But one of the real fun cool features about it was uh, that it had bicycle width tires on it. So <laughs> if I was if I was cruising along in third gear and just slammed it into second and made a turn, it would drift. Cool. It would absolutely break traction. It was um yeah, it, by the way, it only had 3 speeds and you shifted it on the column. Nice. 3 on the tree. Nice. So that's a- also a component of my kickbox story. Hey, does anybody want to know the specs for that 144 cubic inch motor cuz I just looked them up. Yes, please. <laughs> oh, I'm dying. I'm dying to know. Uh, a whopping 84 horsepower. <laughs> oh, yeah. And That's a surprising 134 pound-feet of torque. Okay. I'm telling you, man, okay. it would break traction. It would rip. And that's, oh. uh, that's from the factory at the flywheel at sea level, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, brand new in 1962, <laughs> so... Well, that whopping... I was probably making a solid 61. That whopping 8.7 to 1 compression was really what did it, I think. But, okay, here's the winner. Do you know the name of that 144 cubic inch motor? You know, I actually don't. It was the Thrift Power 6. (laughs) The Thrift Power (laughs) 6. Did it get good mileage? I doubt it. I have not a fucking clue. I couldn't tell how much gas I was putting into it because um, there was something with the the filler neck. Oh fuck me! Uh, Dude, yeah, that would um, that motor got close to thirty miles to a gallon in the right configuration. Mm. No way. There's no way I was getting thirty. Also, I was driving like a. Jackass, it doesn't but... sound like your car was in optimal condition. <laughs> Maybe slightly suboptimal. Yeah, I'll give you that. But yeah, that's actually one thing I had forgotten about. It would not fill the tank fully. Something like it would vapor lock, I guess, in the filler neck and just shut the gas pump off every like gallon or so. Wow. So that was that was fun. Yeah, that sounds like uh, a real hoopty. Yeah, it was great. And uh, because, of course, it had no AC, it was built in 1962. Uh, and my window didn't roll down and it was solid matte black on every single surface. Uh, it was kind of like driving an oven Wait, in the so summer. What, what color was the interior? Was it also like a black vinyl? What, what was left of the original interior was all black vinyl. Nice. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. That sounds like an oven. <laughs> yeah. It had uh, no headliner. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, no floor carpet pan was kind of going, uh, I don't even think it had anything between me and the sheet metal. And in some spots there was nothing between me and the road. <laughs> so that was fun. You could, uh, you could look down and, and see the pavement go by at, at a whopping 40 miles an hour. Yeah, that was, which I'm just going to say 40 miles an hour in that car felt like about a hundred <laughs> yeah. in a modern car. 
That's actually that's great because then you can feel like you're you're a race car driver, but everyone else on the road is just like, why won't this guy get out of my way? <laughs> yeah. Like you're not gonna get tickets. Uh, you, you you're you're fine. You're good. So how long did you have this for? Um, I actually owned the car for I think about three years. Uh, for about two of those years, I was not driving it. That, that's uh, that's usually how that goes. <laughs> it was just a goddamn nightmare to drive. It was. It was terrifying. It was horrible. It was loud. I did more front suspension work on that car than probably every other car I've ever owned combined. <laughs> I just could not get the alignment right. It ate through tires. Like in that three years, I probably had three sets of tires on that car. Since they were tiny, it cost me like 200 bucks every time, which is not bad for a set of tires. But that's actually true for yeah, my current was- daily driver because I really need to do the alignment. Yeah, I suspect the alignment's a little wonky on my MR2 also, probably because I ran it into a curb that one time, but... That, that'll do it. That'll definitely do it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, uh, I ended up owning it for about three years, and I uh, did not sell it. I traded it for a Harley-Davidson motorcycle that never ran. What kind of Harley? <laughs> nice. I was. It was an 83 Sportster 1000. You... I don't know who lost in that deal. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> I don't feel like I won, but at the end of the day, eh, it's whatever. It was a mutual loss. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't even a tie, though. It was a mutual loss. <laughs> yeah, it's just trading garbage. To get, I mean, <laughs> I, yeah, I didn't and still don't know a lot about motorcycles. And this guy said he would trade me the motorcycle for the car. And I was like, fucking deal, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I want a motorcycle. You want a car? Let's make it happen. Yeah, as a Sportster, it, like an, an Ironhead, fairly stock that runs, depending on condition, you can find them for about two grand. Yeah, and that's that's about what I paid for that car. I think I paid a little under two grand for the car. Yeah, that's how you managed to both lose. Yep. So <laughs> I traded one piece of shit vehicle for another piece of shit vehicle. I ended up. Uh, kind of getting it running one time and uh, I tried to take a turn on the motorcycle and uh, I pulled the throttle and it died mid turn. (laughs) So I made a very, very low speed crash (laughs) on that motorcycle (laughs) and dented the tank and scraped up a bunch of shit. And then it it never fully ran. So I think I sold that for like 700 bucks or something. I, I definitely took a loss in the end on that whole deal. See, my strategy to never take a loss is I never sell anything, so I never <laughs> lose money on it. That is probably a wiser way to be than what I you know, did. You're my only friend who's ever said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of my best friends once told me he never understood how people started junkyards until he met me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it becomes a natural decision after a certain period of time or a certain number of cars that you have. Okay, back to it. Uh, yeah, I think it's, is it your turn, Brandon? Or did Zach, did you have some more? Uh, that's. I think that's... Uh, the end of it for that one. Okay, so 
We've established here that I'm a van guy. How that fucking started was I always liked the early flat front vans where it's it's mid-engine. Like some people argue that they're cab overs. And I found a Chevy. It was a thousand bucks. It needed so much work, but I was like, fuck it. I'm going to learn how to like weld and I'm going to learn how to run machines, which in fact it did happen. That's what I do for a living now. But this thing was just such a hunk of shit. It had a quote unquote freshly rebuilt motor on it. <laughs> that was not true. Yeah. Um, man, so even fr from the like factory specs on these, no power brakes, no power steering, solid front axle. Just really, you know, a chore to drive. But I, I love the fucking things. I still have this van that we're talking about. It's in my shop, torn apart with me patching things up. But the, I didn't know that we were doing like a full analysis of a shitbox cars. I thought we were just talking about like one specific thing. So like, I don't know how to keep this short. Uh, it didn't have any sort of amenities like driver and passenger side floors. <laughs> floors? Yeah. Um, I bent a piece of sheet metal and just wedged it in place under the driver's side once because I dropped my phone and it landed inside the frame rail. And I was really <laughs> grateful because there was no floor within six inches of either side of that frame rail. What luck. <laughs> it had no interior... The seats were actually bolted down by two bolts, so they would rock. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like it, it, it rocked, uh, you know. It would do burnouts. To be clear, it would do burnouts. It, it was a three on the tree. So um, I, I learned to drive it. Like when I, when I bought it, it didn't have, it, it w wouldn't, it didn't have brakes. So I, I didn't know how to do that at the time. Uh, I took it to someone to, to get the brakes done. And when they called me to come pick it up, I learned how to drive a three on the tree because he was like, can you get this home? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm fine. I got this. And so I learned in his parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, one time I shut the door, like the driver's side door and the glass exploded everywhere. <laughs> so I took a piece of plexiglass that I found in the trash at work and I uh, cut that into the right shape and wedged it in place. Let's see. Uh, oh, there was there was a really gnarly leak in the top of the A-pillar, which uh, when water runs down the A-pillar, that empties out directly onto the fuse panel. <laughs> Wait, is that is that the design from the factory or is that just a... Uh... Well, they don't want water getting into the engine or something. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the wiring, it might not have been the worst part, but it wasn't the best part. By the end of, oh, Jesus Christ, at some point, I decided that I was going to swap everything over to a different fuse panel because most of the tabs that would hold fuses in were broken off from having rotted. Uh, it were, there were constant shorts. Most of the electrical components that were there at some point had been removed anyway. It was It was the mostly the bare minimum that was required to have the engine running and the lights on most of the lights. So I, I put in another fuse panel, like a little like $30, like hot rod sort of unit. And my plan was every time I had to do electrical work, 
I would just find the circuit and swap it over to the new fuse panel, right? Sure. Um, that sounds logical enough until you have done two or three circuits and realize that what you actually have is, is, is just an insane bird's nest of mm -hmm. wires that are all in black and red because you're poor and only own two colors of wire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so eventually it got to the point that to start it, I just had to turn the key and then climb under it and, and bridge the starter with a screwdriver. <laughs> Um, this was literally a routine that I, I had to do about a third of the times that I started it because I never found the wire from the ignition to the starter that was grounding out. So I, I would, I would climb under it twice nice. a week on an average. Um, I did actually eventually bend a piece of wire so that it would like wrap around the engine sort of, and I could hook it on one screw and pull it up and it would start it that way. That's ingenuity right there. Uh, let's let's see. Uh, oh, the um, the back doors had so much rot in the cab corners, and the actual structural parts of the the rear body had rotted in half. So that if I hit a bump really hard, my back doors would come open, <laughs> <laughs> which happened going down the highway several times. So yeah, don't keep anything valuable in the back. You'll be fine. I uh, I once decided to drive this to Georgia to visit my family. That's an 800-mile trip. And I made it, like, you know, so 1,600-mile round trip. And I, I made it every bit of 1,400 miles of that trip in that van. <laughs> Before I broke three rings and a rod. Ooh, ouch. Yeah, I had yeah. recently... On the uh, supposedly... Freshly rebuilt engine. Well, I had recently put a new intake and carb on it, which I get is not like a massive improvement for any motor. Like best case scenario, like without a cam, like what are you going to do really? But the first gear on those is so short because they were like work trucks that I could pick up the front passenger side wheel at that point. <laughs> if I dropped the clutch, it would pick up a wheel. Nice. Yeah, but it also ran hot as fuck because the carb that we put on was too lean and I didn't know how to fix it at the time. I still don't know how to work on Edelbrock's, but like, yeah, so it, it overheated and, and blew up everything. Also worth worth remembering is in the winter, it sucked because there was no floors and it just leaked air everywhere. So you were just free. Oh, there was no heater in this, by the way. Um, oh, no. Or obviously air conditioner, but like, yeah, the heat didn't work. The heat sort of blew ambiently, like because there was no like ventilation or anything, and where it would dump out was directly into a hole in the floor. <laughs> so it's heating the outside real well. Yeah, but in in the summer was where it really shined because the summer is where, again, the placement on the engine for these is between the driver and passenger side so uh, between the driver and passenger you're it's about a foot behind you and there is no insulation in in the engine cover it's called a doghouse there's no insulation in the doghouse so it is just cooking you the fuck alive <laughs> in the summer so that was wait that was the design so it was designed that i mean they, they didn't they didn't think to insulate that first of all cool well i mean from the factory it probably had insulation 
Oh, okay. It was gone. And also, <laughs> they I don't think they... I don't know this for a fact, but I'm not sure that they ever came with factory 350s. And the, the, the radiator placement was definitely a bummer and way too small. Like... I, I nowadays I have this thing so that it'll run cool. Like it runs at 160 degrees. I need to put in a trinary switch to like turn it on and off. I have a huge aluminum radiator in it and electric fans. But before that, the the radiator just it it was cooling off like almost directly into the cab. It felt like, and because it's it's in the middle of the van, it's an enclosed box, so there's not a lot of good airflow. So the heat wants to radiate upwards, and the cover yeah. for the engine fits so poorly because it had been beat on and just fucked up that yeah heat just pumped directly out of the engine bay and into the cab it definitely had <laughs> exhaust leaks that fortunately would come into the cab and then out the floor of the van <laughs> so you can't you have to keep the holes in the floor to get the exhaust it might have been the only thing keeping me alive yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh and that gets us to probably the sketchiest thing in this van. So we're just now getting to the sketchiest part. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so because of the way that these are built, the the throttle, like the pedal, goes to a linkage that pushes backwards and reaches a pivot point that then goes up 90 degrees to another pivot point that goes forward and connects to the carburetor. So this is like before they invented throttle cables or something. Y yeah. I'm um, actually like one of the things I'm doing to it as I'm rebuilding it is I'm converting, I'm getting rid of all of those brackets and linkages and, and going to a cable. There were cars that were starting to run cables in this era. Cause it's a 69 and, and some cars definitely had that by the mid sixties. For some reason, they didn't think that that was a better system than several like long thin linkages dude the uh because the transmission is so far behind you the the transmission linkages are about four or five feet long and they're three quarter inch solid bar stock <laughs> yeah so so needless to say this van was not in great shape and the linkages bound up like crazy you could really only get up to like 40 or 45 miles an hour using the pedal because the linkages had so much flex and the pivot points were like <laughs> crusty and didn't want to bend. It had plenty of power. It just, you just literally couldn't open up the carburetor using the pedal. So for a very long time, I drove the van with the, in, with the cover off of the engine. So the engine was just <laughs> in the cab with you, like out in the open. And no air cleaner on the carburetor. Because I needed the air cleaner off to be able to reach with my bare hand. Well, oh, okay, no, I, I would wear a glove. But I would reach into the engine bay and open the carburetor manually. <laughs> but let us not forget that this is a three on the tree we're talking about. I literally had to steer with my left elbow and reach through the steering wheel to shift with my left hand because I was operating the carburetor with my right hand. Nice. Well, so I drove it like that for months. <laughs> now, did you have to, so did you actually have to operate the uh, carburetor while you were in like your first and second gear too? Or could you like 
get there with, you know, the pedal shift, and then you'd only have to operate it in like the top gear to get a little bit more. No, or, um, the throttle linkage was, was so iffy that sometimes it would like bind up and then spring. So you, I would like, ooh. I would have it to the floor and I'd be like crawling up to 10 miles an hour and suddenly spinning a tire. <laughs> so for, for good measure, what I would do is I would kind of use my hand to dampen the throttle under those circumstances. So I was using my foot to assist, but I was really doing the fine controlling with my hand. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. It, could you also, uh, you know, spit a mouthful of nitromethane fuel into the carburetor from the, the driver's seat <laughs> that way? In, in theory. <laughs> yes. Fully could. Okay. That's handy. At some point, Brandon, I, you still have this, you still have this van, right? Oh yeah. Could you show us at some point a picture? Maybe we can share it or something. Uh, a picture of how this looks, of how you would actually operate it. So like, you know, how you would hold the steering wheel and the carburetor at the same time. I would love to see that seating position personally. Dude, uh, no problem. I, yeah, I have it in my shop. I'll take some pictures and I like, I have a picture of the, uh, the wiring for it somewhere. I don't, no worries. I'll, I'll have to take some pictures. Oh, this is the, the same thing that once I removed the windshield to start patching it up, I realized that the entire window frame was rotted out of it. Like, I'm having to fab- fully fabricate a new window frame for it. And I also, there, a piece came out of, a, a piece of sheet metal came out of the, the, like, the upper part of the window frame, but it wasn't the frame itself. It was the brace behind it. And once I removed the piece of glass, I realized that that was actually structural and the, the roof kind of collapsed a little bit. (laughs) So this is going to be like a ship of Theseus sort of situation where you're just going to replace every single piece of this van piece by piece until it's a, an entirely new van, right? I have six parts vans. So yeah. Okay. This, this is the van that I'm, I have, uh, what should be a rough close to enough to put like a, a 350 to 400 horsepower motor in it. Um, I'm going to do an overdrive transmission and a 12 bolt posi rear that I actually pulled out of another Chevy van. This weirdly enough, because in its configuration that I just described, it had overdrive for a long portion of its life and such a tall rear end that not only was it all of the things I just described, it was the most fuel efficient vehicle I've owned in the last 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> What kind of mileage did you get? About 18. Highway. Okay. Which, I mean... <laughs> Wonderful. I get that that's not great, but for what it was, it was great. I mean, my daily driver right now gets 12 out of a small block with less power. <laughs> yeah. Oh, by the way, uh, I I recently found out that one of the tires on my Sabru was at like 15 PSI, and... I was like, oh, so that's why I got 10 miles per gallon on that tank. Wait, what happened? I I, I failed to pump up the tire. It has a slow leak, oh, I oh. guess. Oh, that was another thing. It was so hard to steer that thing because all of the weight is like so directly over the front axle and there was no power steering that I would constantly have to over-inflate the front tires just so I could parallel park. <laughs> yeah, I mean... That probably weighed like what three thousand pounds or something. Any anything that big with no power steering is going to be pretty difficult. Yeah. Um. 
I was actually talking to Zach about this before we uh, all got on the call. I want to say that that specific one in its configuration probably weighed around 3,400 pounds. God, that's how much, that's how much my car weighs. Yeah. Well, the thing about those was like, they look like they should be heavy because they're just a big box, but it's a big hollow box. That's true. That's a good point. My, um, it's an early Chevy van that I'm building to be like my pro street car. And I want to say with a big block and everything done to it, we're estimating that the weight's going to be between 34 and 3,500 pounds. Wow. Oh, so this is the uh, this is the one that you're gonna do the the drag race van with it, right? No, I have several vans. Okay. No, the drag race van is actually in pretty good shape. Like the frame needs to be finished because the the back half section hasn't been welded up yet. But we're we're rewiring that and doing everything before it ever touches the road. Gotcha. That one hasn't had a, an engine in it since I bought it. Yeah. I was going to say the my MR2 is the only car I've owned that has no power steering and most of the time it's fine but parallel parking is a little bit tough and that thing only weighs like 2500 pounds so with anything heavier I can imagine it would be tough you know one of the best ways to get really good at parallel parking is literally to just not have power steering I had another yeah. I had another you know shitbox car that was you know, I learned real fast. I, I got it the first time every time because, again, you have to really yank on that wheel um, and you get good at it. So it's not all bad. Yeah. And it's a good, good workout also. Yeah. You know, every day is arm day when you don't have power steering. Yeah, I had calluses on weird parts of my hands. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, sounds like yeah, fun. That was, that so was did I one. win? Uh. Yeah, I mean, was I the ultimate? I don't, I don't know if I would want to drive any of the cars that we that we mentioned. The, the only but. thing that struck me as notably worse than anything I dealt with was the idea of having your car alarm just suddenly going off in the middle <laughs> That would definitely give me anxiety. Yeah, yeah, I, I didn't. At least I didn't have to, you know, manually work the throttle, uh, you know, while, while driving with my hand. But uh, yeah, it got hot. Yeah, sometimes. the alarm was a pain in the butt. <laughs> like I would have to have a rag handy so that if I forgot the glove or didn't put it on or whatever, like I would have something to grab the carburetor with. <laughs> and I always had to like be careful. Like I have long hair and like my dreads are very long. I had to be careful about hair getting sucked into the carb and stuff. <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that was a, that was certainly a, that was a good one. Yeah, definitely. Definitely in the, uh, in the running for, for being the best one. Yeah. Do you guys want to take a little break and then uh, get, get on to the um, battle of the overpass? Yeah, I think that sounds good. Yeah, that's, that sounds okay. good. Sounds good to me. Is everyone here? Is Zach here? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Yeah, we're all okay. here. Uh, I'm just going to mostly read from this article here uh, with a little commentary. All right. So in 1937, Walter Ruther and his United Auto Workers Union had brought General Motors and Chrysler to their knees by staging massive 
sit-down strikes in pursuit of higher pay, shorter hours, and other improvements in workers' lives. So we'll probably do uh, episodes on those strikes in in the future. But but when Ruther and the UAW set their sights on the Ford Motor Company's River Rouge Complex in Dearborn, Michigan, Henry Ford made it clear that he'd never give in to the union. So I'm sure we've talked about this and we'll talk about it in the future, but Henry Ford was a uh, evil fascist uh, piece of shit and uh, racist as well. Yeah, um, no friend of labor. Definitely not. Fascism and racism tend, tend to be two sides of the same coin. Yeah, yeah. So on the morning of May 26, 1937, the Detroit News photographer James Scotty Kilpatrick was among a crowd waiting for the shift change at River Rouge, which employed 90,000 workers. Around 2 p.m. that May 26, uh, Ruther arrived at the Miller Road overpass at Gate 4 with an entourage of clergymen, representatives from the Senate Committee on Civil Liberties, and dozens of women from UAW Local 174, where Ruther was president. The women wore green berets and carried leaflets reading Unionism, not Fordism, which they intended to hand out to departing workers. And just as an aside, uh, Fordism is kind of, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what they meant by this, but generally speaking today, it's it's sort of an idea where the the boss or the owner of the company is sort of like a, an enlightened despot, you know, someone who is doing doing their best to provide a good working environment for the workers just out of the the benevolence of their own good heart not or and it all it also sort of is uh, is seen as uh appeasement to avoid uh union unionization efforts a lot of times well it's like uh, an but, established phenomenon that you have to at least give people enough to prevent them from getting all uppity and shit you know you can't have yeah people starving to death because you're not even paying them enough to eat or collapsing because you're working them for 36 straight hours like you got to give them just enough and unions obviously want more than that but a smart boss will give people just enough to shut them up and not one thing more smart yep. here in you know square scare quotes and then yeah. use and then use uh the good press from doing that which Henry Ford, we all know, did. We all hear about the, oh, he paid his workers enough to buy their the cars that they make. And you're like, Jesus. <laughs> so $100 telling everyone about it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. What was the company that did that recently? Um, Which one? I, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Like two or three at least in the last year have made big press off of like making extravagant covid uh claims and, and stuff and then just not doing anything it was trump's entire mo he was always talking about how he was going to give money to this person or that person and then he just wouldn't do it yeah right yep. but there was some company recently that spent you know gave like five million to charity and then spent like 50 million advertising that they did that i might be getting the numbers wrong but it was something along that scale even still you're describing a thing that has been an issue with at least two or three companies in the last six months that like got press. Yeah. Okay. So they're, they're there to hand out these leaflets to, to the workers getting off work. 
uh, at the direction of uh, Scotty Kilpatrick, uh, Ruther posed for photographs with UAW organizer, organizational director Richard Frankenstein and a few other organizers atop the overpass, which was public property. Uh, so they had the Ford Motor Company signs in the background. Uh, then Harry Bennett showed up with his entourage. And now there's a there's a whole dollop episode about Harry Bennett. I think it, the title is uh, Ford's Henchman. Uh, and I think the guest was Matt Chrisman. So I would suggest listening to that episode. It's it's a, a really crazy story, um, how this guy came up and got his place in the Ford uh, security forces. So uh, Bennett, one of Henry Ford's right-hand men, led the notorious Ford Service Department, a private police force composed of ex-convicts, ex-athletes, ex-cops, and gang members. So they're all, they were basically just hired thugs that that Ford had beat up uh, workers who wanted to organize. Or um, I think in one case, they, uh, they, they gave, like, you know, gave a guy a ride and they're like, took him outside the factory, just pushed him out the door and then kept driving. So they're doing all kinds of, of fun stuff like that. Yikes. No, that's, uh, it's wild to hear what they used to do um, to unionization efforts. It's, it's wild to me that unions were powerful back then. And these were the tactics they used against them. And then today, you know, it pales in comparison. It's, it, it feels like so much less um, aggressive today. And yet unions are at their weakest point. I don't know. I feel like there's just something to be noted there that just, when you know with the with the uh stroke of a pen um you know people the, the state can really change the uh the playing field quite a bit yeah well and i mean nowadays you don't really need to hire a bunch of thugs to to beat up people like you can just call the police and have them do that for you really yeah like he said calling yeah. a bunch of thugs <laughs> yeah <laughs> So Bennett says, uh, you'll have to get off of here uh, to the union guys. Uh, and Ruther replied, we're not doing anything. So then the infamous Battle of the Overpass uh, was on. Forty of Bennett's men charged the union organizers. Kilpatrick called out a warning, but the security men pounced, beating the union leaders while reporters and clergy looked on. Kilpatrick and the other photographers began snapping away. Reporters accompanying them took notes while they were what, of what they were seeing, and on the article you can see a couple photos from that uh, in the in the midst of the beating. Ruther was kicked, stomped, lifted into the air, thrown to the ground repeatedly, and tossed down two flights of stairs. Frankenstein, a thirty-year-old hulking former football player, got it worse because he tried to fight back. Bennett's men swarmed him, pulled his jacket over his head, and beat him senseless. Which, I don't know, seems kind of like a Looney Tunes style of, way of beating someone up. Like, I don't wear a suit jacket hardly ever, but uh, maybe this is just a thing that happened a lot back in the day when everyone was wearing a suit. You know, I think there was a James Bond movie where someone did this. Worth noting, in this era, Walter Ruther was a, a socialist. Like, he was an active member of the Socialist Party. And, okay, I didn't know that. Um. Okay, I, I would want to. I'm gonna have to fact check myself, but I, I'm pretty sure because I, I know that he had some strong leftist tendencies 
earlier in life that he kind of walked away from. But like back then, leftism was a very like suit and tie kind of kind of thing. Um, it wasn't until the fifties that they realized that respectability wouldn't get them anywhere. Yeah, I mean, and it makes us it makes sense that if they're going to take this photo, they'd want to be dressed up. But I I just that whole tactic of pulling someone's jacket over their head it wouldn't have occurred to me. It's a hockey maneuver, dude. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So. Uh, Frankenstein said, uh, it was the worst licking I've ever taken, uh, meaning a beating. They bounce us down the concrete steps of an overpass we had climbed. Then they would knock us down, stand us up, knock us down again. Another union leader was tossed off the overpass. He fell 30 feet to the pavement below and broke his back. Uh, the security men even roughed up some of the women. The battle, such as it was, ended almost as suddenly as it had begun. But then there was a matter of witnesses, especially the journalists on the scene. Some of Bennett's security men began to tear notebooks from the reporter's hands. Others went after the photographers, confiscating film and smashing cameras to the ground. They chased one fleeing photographer for five miles until he ducked into a police station for safety. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good distance to run. <laughs> like, Also, that's pretty risky to duck into a police station for protection. Yeah. That's 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 that that is iffy. If, if they had any idea what was going on, you know, they'd probably let the uh, let the thugs in. Well, I mean, that's kind of what happened with the um, the the drum guys in uh, that other episode that we recorded. The drum you know, episode. Do, yeah, wasn't wasn't there some complicity? Uh, some what do you call it? Uh, shenanigans with the the local police force and the uh, UAW or something like that? To an extent. I mean, it, probably not any more or less so than there always has been. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So Scotty Kilpatrick fled too and made it to his car just in, with just enough time to hide the glass plate negatives from his speed graphic uh, camera under the back seat. When some of Bennett's men stopped him and demanded that he surrender his negatives, he handed them unexposed plates. So it did the old switcheroo on him. And I don't know if like glass plate negatives were commonplace in 1937. Like they talk about other reporters using film cameras, which seems like I don't don't know if Scotty Kilpatrick was just uh, like a weirdo that liked old technology or if the glass plates were somehow better or whatever, but I don't know. I'm not a photography nerd, so I don't know the answer to that. Let's see. Once Ruther uh, Frankenstein and witnesses began to tell reporters what they had seen in front of the Ford plant, uh, Harry Bennett issued a statement. The affair was deliberately provoked by union officials. It said they feel naturally with her. (laughs) They feel with her without justification the La Follette Civil Liberties Committee sympathizes with their aims and they simply want to trump up a charge of Ford brutality that they could take down to Washington and flaunt before the Senatorial Committee. So I want to say, I should probably look this up. I want to say that's uh, Fightin' Bob Lafette, La Follette or whatever, the the senator from Wisconsin, I believe. Uh, let me just look that up real quick. We can edit this out if I'm wrong, but 
Yeah, Robert M. La Follette Jr., a Republican and Progressive Party senator from Wisconsin. He was a pretty cool guy. I don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, maybe we can do a follow up on that. Uh, I knew I do know that the podcast um, Tank Riot, which despite the name, they're not tankies, they're they're libs. They did an episode about La Follette. And uh, I guess in Wisconsin, they have something called Fight and Bob Fest every year. That's like some big festival uh, celebrating this guy. Um, huh, I might have to check that out. I yeah. wonder where in Wisconsin. Uh, near Madison, I believe. Hmm. Uh, That's or doable maybe, for me. Yeah. So uh, Bennett continues, uh, I know definitely no Ford servicemen or plant police were involved in any way in the fight. And I just like imagining, I can't do the accent or whatever, but I just imagine this in like sort of a, you know, Bugs Bunny um, gangster style, like Brooklyn (laughs) accent from the thirties, you know? (laughs) Yeah. He says, uh, as a matter of fact, the servicemen had issued instructions. The union people could come and distribute their pamphlets at the gates. So long as they don't, interfere with employees at work the unionists he said were beaten by regular ford employees who were on their way to work (laughs) on the afternoon shift the union men called them scabs and cursed and and taunted them dearborn police later said that the ford service department was defending public property oh my god yeah so a tale as old as time (laughs) so he so anyone who is wondering if if uh if what they've heard about unions is uh, is true or not, um, it, it's probably not. Uh, they they lie. They lie about unions and everything to do with unions. They always lie. <laughs> the the companies do, yeah. Yes, the yeah. Sorry. Nowadays, a lot of the unions brazenly. Yeah. So uh, Bennett didn't know that that uh, Kilpatrick had hidden those negatives, uh, so he was just you know lying out his ass to you know, make it, it seem like, uh, I don't know, whatever. So meanwhile, Scotty Kilpatrick developed his negatives and other photographers after the event captured on film, the injuries to bloodied Ruther and Frankenstein. Uh, if Mr. Ford thinks this will stop us, he's got another thing coming. Frankenstein said, we'll go back there with enough men to lick him at his own game. I, I always find it funny when, you know, <laughs> back in this day, they say lick instead of beat someone. Yeah, you make it sound very sensual, though. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was going for. Nailing it. Uh, Let's see. Ruther was more composed. Before the UAW gets through with Harry Bennett and Ford's service department, Dearborn will be part of the United States, and the workers will be able to enjoy their constitutional rights. So Bennett did his best to put this version into news accounts of the Battle of the Overpass. But once Kilpatrick's photographs were published, it was obvious that the beatings were far more violent than Bennett had described. And they showed forward security men surrounding and beating UAW men and grabbing UAW women. In all, 16 unionists were injured in the attack, including seven women. Ruther was pictured bloodied and with a swollen skull, and Frankenstein was even worse, his face cut and his shirt torn and bloodstained. Kilpatrick's photographs uh, quickly turned public opinion toward the notion that the Ford Service Department was a gang of hired thugs. Uh, In a hearing before the National Labor Relations Board in 1937, 
The Ford Motor Company was called to defend itself from charges that the company was engaging in unfair labor practices in violation of the 1935 Wagner Act, which prohibited employers from interfering with workers' efforts to organize the unions, into unions, excuse me. Uh, during the hearing, Ford workers testified that if their superiors suspected of them of showing interest in the UAW, Ford service department men would pull them from the assembly lines and escort them to the gate as if, and they were fired on the spot, often with, without explanation. The publicity from the Battle of the Overpass and the ensuing labor board hearing proved to be too much for Henry Ford. He had tried to raise his workers' pay soon after the incident in Dearborn, but his efforts came too late, and ultimately, like Detroit's other automotive giants, he had no choice but to sign a contract with the UAW. So that's the failure of Fordism right there. Yay! The power of Scotty Kilpatrick's photographs eventually vaulted Walter Ruther into national prominence as a labor leader and prompted the administrators of the Pulitzer Prize to institute an award for for photography. The first Pulitzer for photography would be awarded to Milton Brooks of the Detroit News in 1942, for his image of UAW strikers savagely beating a strike breaker. So, fuck oh, scabs. Uh, fuck Ford. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So that's all I've yeah, got in this that's, one. That's bad press. That, that just, that, that's annoying that like, oh, well, the first award should go to people who are trying to make the union look bad. You're like, oh, come on. Yeah, maybe there was, a, there was something else going on there. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, that's the the Battle of the Overpass. Wow, yeah, that's uh, again, all these stories are always so brutal. Just, it's crazy to me that anyone could see that and not be against, you know, against the company. Yeah. Uh, well, they were just, just doing what they had to do, man. I mean, you know, something they would go out of business with if 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 there was a if there was a union at any of these plants, we know that they would have gone out of business. Yeah, that's why Ford is no longer a company <laughs> yeah. because they got the union, and so now there's no more Fords. Dodge, GM, all of them—they're all gone. No, actually, that's the—I yeah. think that's the only reason that Tesla is the last car company. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah, that's um, that is just nuts, you know. That time, yeah, different times back then, apparently. Yeah, and this guy Bennett, Harry Bennett, was a real psychopath, real violent guy. Like, if I remember correctly, I might be confusing him with someone else. He um, had like a like a target set up in his office that he would just like shoot at with a pistol, like when he was bored. Yeah, that sounds about right. Wait, he did what now? Yeah, he did target practice in his office that was like attached to the Ford plant. So like. I, I okay, assume he had like a steel plate. Scumbag, but that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I looked into setting up a target range in my basement, and I live in a very populated area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think he also like he had he had some giant mansion, and had like a separate house for ducks or something like that. Uh, again, I, it's been a while since I studied this. Uh, but yeah, he was, he was an interesting guy. He had a separate mansion for ducks. Yes. 
I might be confusing that with a uh, British politician who also had a separate house for their ducks. So he's cool uh, beating up people who wanted a living wage, but he built a (laughs) house for ducks. Yes. Sounds like a stand-up guy. Yeah. Yeah, see, I think I think the real problem here is that, you know, under socialism, people can't make separate houses for their personal ducks. <laughs> it would be a communal house for everyone's ducks. And, yes. You know, yeah. Billionaires, millionaires, they need their, their houses for their ducks. Well, no, I mean, under socialism, they can still have individual houses for ducks, but they'll just be like drab concrete buildings. <laughs> <laughs> like a Khrushchev. What do they call it? Khrushchev or whatever the the apartment buildings that Khrushchev built in the I, Soviet I know Union. Brutalist architecture, but I don't I don't know specifically. But I, yeah. I do know. I think I think Connor and I might have talked about this, but it's just no, no. Is it somebody else? It's funny to me that every time that there is a meme that's comparing like this is what the world looks like under socialism <laughs> and this is what it looks like under capitalism, they always have a picture of Detroit for the for the communist country and <laughs> and some socialist country for capitalism like the, the the common one is you see havana compared to detroit but with yeah, yeah i've seen that one yeah there's there's other ones too though it's 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 something <laughs> yeah also just generally the idea that like it's worse to have bad architecture than homelessness yeah i <laughs> <laughs> I never quite got that. Yeah, like, like, I might be like, homeless, but at least I don't live in that shithole. <laughs> I, I I don't. Yeah, no, no, I would take that house, but it's ugly. There's a there's a pretty good there's some uh, uh, architecture um, blogger type person on YouTube that did a pretty good breakdown of all the the Soviet housing projects. And like some of them weren't that great. Like you might have had to share a bathroom or whatever. But like you said, at least you weren't homeless. You know, it's uh, much better than the alternative. Dude, I hung out with somebody in San Francisco one time. They did not have their per- a personal restroom. It was like a couple of restrooms per floor. And their rent was exorbitant. But it was the cheapest oh, place. Yeah. It was over a thousand dollars a month for one room that didn't have a bathroom. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, that's that's Christ. too much. But uh that that same channel, I believe they did a like a breakdown of like American um suburbs and like or gated communities and how like you know racism and everything led to the the invention of that. Yeah, racism is a driving factor in a lot of American things. Yeah. If I remember to I'll find the links for that. But um, I think that's all. Uh, should we do a little sign-off thing? I, I know we've been kind of just fizzling out at the end here. I feel like we're fizzling. We're fizzling pretty well. Okay. So we'll just keep up that tradition. Dude, I'm old. I'm <laughs> in the stage of my life where it's all just a fizzle at this point. <laughs> all right. I'm going to hit stop I recording. Now i got 30 years of fizzling. <laughs> <laughs> Something to look forward to. All right, signing off. We gonna make you pay five to five bits. We make you pay five to water bits. We gonna fight riches and not riches, but we gonna fight the solidarity. We said we're not gonna fight capitalism with black capitalism, but we gonna fight the socialism. <laughs>
or not so amazingly, Cuba's crime rate is one of the lowest in the entire hemisphere. Oddly enough, it seems that when people have their basic human needs met, they're less likely to commit crimes. My calculations are correct. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. The free market mythology, it argues that the most ruthless, selfish, opportunistic, greedy, calculating plunderers applying the most heartless measures in cold-blooded pursuit of corporate interest and wealth accumulation will produce the best results for all of us. Through something called the invisible hand. <laughs> what are you smiling about? Dude, I almost had you.